Father, uh, this is a, a great day. It's a beautiful day that you've given us. It is a gift, Lord, the fact that we uh, are still taking our, a, a breath, the fact that we uh, are able to experience the beauty of your creation, the fact that we can come here uh, among other brothers and sisters in the Lord and uh, rejoice with each other, comfort each other, encourage one another, worship together and hear from your word. It truly is a, a, a blessed time that we have here. I do pray for those who are not able to join us, who are joining us via internet. Thank you for the, the technology, the ability for them to, to still uh, be a part in, in a sense, Lord. And I pray that you continue to comfort them uh, as they uh, are healing up or as uh, they're uh, dealing with uh, uh, difficulty, Lord, at this point. Um, and encourage us to remind us, actually, to, to, to reach out to these individuals um, just to show them that we love them and that uh, you love them, too. Um, pray that you bless our time in your word. It's all for your glory. Again, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Our last passage that we looked at, uh, well, last week, was Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And uh, that is uh, Paul's second prayer uh, in this letter. And it really serves as a transition uh, into chapter 4. And because here in chapter 4, Paul is switching gears. The first half of, of, of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is teaching uh, the Ephesians. The second half, Paul's exhorting them on, in light of this teaching, live. The first half is all about doctrine. The second half is all about the duties of a follower of Jesus. And one of the main focuses of this entire letter is the believer's identity in Christ, which I think is a very appropriate uh, uh, topic considering the audience to whom Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to uh, uh, a church located in the city of Ephesus. And these individuals, uh, their previous identity prior to coming to Christ was deeply rooted in the Roman world, deeply rooted in paganism, in the practice, especially in, in particularly in Ephesus in that surrounding region, uh, the practice of magic and sorcery and witchcraft. Uh, and it was uh, definitely a temptation for a number of these believers, these new believers, to still practice their old way of life. And so Paul's really trying to hit home this idea of that's not who you are now. Your identity now is in Christ. And he spends three chapters just bringing this in, just making sure this is who you are in Christ. So I think it would do, it would be well for us to, uh, or do well for us, whatever the phrase that is, um, to, to kind of review uh, all that God has done, all who we are in Christ. What does that mean? And so uh, the first, yay, it's working. Good. Uh, the first one is uh, we are saints. If you are in Christ, we are saints. That doesn't mean that you're all great, that you're amazing, that you are almost nearly perfect, or that the Vatican and the Pope have given their stamp of approval on you and you're now a saint. No, you are a saint because you are in Christ. Christ Jesus is the Holy One, and because we are in Christ, His holiness is now our holiness. We are now saints we are also blessed with every spiritual blessing, meaning there's not one follower of Jesus who lacks in any spiritual blessing. 
We are holy and blameless. The way Paul uh, grammatically puts that is it's not only a present reality, but it's a present reality that's going to continue all the way into eternity. You are holy and blameless. Four, we are predestined to adoption. Oh, that's so great. Meaning, uh, when God was designing, putting, writing down the blueprints to this thing called salvation, he chose, he made a decision that those in his kingdom, those a part of his church, would be adopted. Paul is writing this letter to the first century uh, uh, believers. And in Roman, according to Roman law, um, if you were adopted, meaning like if you were like, let's say you were a slave and you grew up in a, in a household and that household loved you because they grew up with you. They saw you grow up from a baby and they want to adopt you. Uh, according to Roman law, if you were adopted, um, then your old identity is, is done away with. All your debts have been canceled. You assume the new, the, the, your new identity in your new family along with its rights and privileges and you could never be disowned. According to Roman law, if you were a, uh, a natural child, meaning you were born into that family, a father could disown a natural-born child. But if you were adopted, you could never be disowned. And we have been adopted, predestined to adopt it as, as, as sons and daughters in Christ. This is not just uh, something we're hoping for in the future, but we also receive the blessings of that adoption even now. Paul says that we, God has given us a spirit of adoption, which we cry, Abba, Father. God is our Father. He then moves on. We are redeemed. The price for our salvation has been paid. He goes on. We are forgiven. All of our sins have been canceled away. They're, they're done away with. We have an eternal, inherit, an eternal inheritance. Verse number eight. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we belong to God and nothing's going to change that. Later, uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, literally the, the down payment that we're going to receive our eternal inheritance. So we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's immeasurable power works in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in us. We are spiritually alive. We who used to be spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, now, because we are in Christ, are now spiritually alive. Whew, I'm sorry. This is so cool. Um, I can't write this stuff. I can't write this stuff. I, I don't know. I've been enjoying this series because this is God's truth, which means it's true truth. It's truth that you can believe in, that you can trust in, that you could live in. It's amazing. So where are we at? Uh, 11. 11. We have been raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. If you want to just blow your mind, that's not just something we're waiting for in the future. That's a current reality right now. We are spiritually positioned, as, as Christ is, is as sitting at the right hand of the Father, we are in Christ. We are with him spiritually speaking. That is amazing. We, uh, grace and kindness have been given to us. 13, we are God's workmanship. The word he uses, poema. It's almost the idea of we are God's work of art. We have been created for good works. We have been reconciled to God. 16, we have been reconciled to each other. We are members of God's household. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Together as a church, we are being built up into a dwelling place for God. Number 20, last, we display God's glory in the world. In just the first 
three chapters. This is what God has done. This is who you are in Christ. So good. So great. Amazing truth. And now, Paul switches gears. Now we get to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're there with your Bibles, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Paul says, therefore, give you a little uh, insight into studying the Bible a little bit better. Whenever you see therefore, figure out why therefore is therefore, as that's what Jim would say too. Why is therefore therefore? Well, what Paul's doing is he's reaching back to all those amazing things that we just looked at. I mean, 20 things I just brought up. And you could easily take 20 of those things and spend way more time diving into the richness of those truths and the implications of those truths. And Paul says, like, in light of all of that, he's going to continue. But in verse 1, Therefore I, Paul, Paul speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, literally in the Greek, the the prisoner in the Lord. Now, I just want to kind of stop there. Because as Paul's writing this letter, he is a prisoner of Rome. After ministering in the city of Ephesus, he travels to Jerusalem. Some problems happen there. He eventually is arrested. But because he is a Roman citizen, he has the the right to um, present his case before Caesar. So he goes to Rome. And we don't have a lot of details, but what we do think is that Paul was uh, under house arrest for a while. And that meant he was chained 24-7 to a Roman guard. So physically, Paul is a prisoner. But whenever Paul uses this phrase, there's more of theological significance to it. Uh, For instance, just show you a couple of passages here. So uh, just chapter prior to this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner... Of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. In Philemon 1, Paul says, A prisoner, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What Paul is describing is not simply a, a physical reality, but a spiritual reality. Yes, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And yes, he is bound to a Roman guard. But in Paul's mind, Paul's like, I'm bound to Christ. And just like a prisoner uh, relinquishes his, his um, whatever privileges and, and, and um, freedoms, Paul willingly relinquishes his desires, his dreams, his goals in life in order to serve Christ, in order to be bound to Christ. And Paul uses this language that for for people in the first century, they would have heard and said, that's kind of offensive. I mean, even nowadays, using that term to describe your relationship with someone you love. I mean, men, think of if you're writing your your wife or your significant other, uh, uh, a love little card, and you're Valentine's Day or something, and you're saying, I love you. I am a prisoner of you ball in chain <laughs> right like does that really communicate it doesn't really communicate but paul even gets even more offensive when he uses the greek in other passages he uses the greek word doulos which is the word slave so i'm a slave to christ paul says for me to live is christ to die is gain 
We really have to ask ourselves, we may not use the same phrase that Paul uses, but how would we describe our life to Christ? How would we describe our love for Christ, our devotion to Christ? Would it be as significant, as distinct as Paul saying, I'm a prisoner in the Lord? Would it? I mean, that's weighty right there. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. So again, this is, this is not just a physical reality. This is a spiritual reality. But Paul says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you. This idea of continually come alongside you to, to urge you, to, to, to ask of you earnestly, to exhort you to walk. This is a kind of going back to the Old Testament. It's how living your life, your behavior. You're, you're, and it's, so, it's, it's a great picture of life, walking, right? Because walking is not stagnant. You're, you're moving. You're, you're going towards a goal. So it's like, where are you walking? Are you walking towards, you know, Christ? Or are you walking towards uh, your own things? But he says, I, therefore, a pri- uh, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, continually exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, your spiritual journey will be greatly influenced by how you understand that word worthy. Some people will take that word and say, okay, well, Paul's saying is, uh, I implore you to walk in a manner that merits your calling. I, I ask you to, to walk in a manner that earns your calling, that deserves your calling. The truth is, well, how can, how can you do that? Have you ever seen the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan? Um, if you haven't, spoiler alert. Uh, basically, the movie's uh, basically focusing around this guy, Private Ryan. He's a soldier. And he has four brothers, and all of them, including him, Ryan, uh, enlist uh, to join the army, and it's during World War II, and they go overseas to fight. Uh, all four of Ryan's brothers get killed in action, and he himself goes missing. And the War Department hears about this, and they're like, well, we can't, we can't allow this, this woman's, all this woman's sons to just die. I mean, we're already dealing with a lot of heartbreak and a lot of sacrifice. That's a lot. So they, they decide to assemble a team of soldiers to go search for Private Ryan to find him and send him home. And so uh, that's what happens. You, the team is assembled and they, they go out and they're looking for, for Ryan and a number of the, the main characters die because of the journey. Some of them get really resentful, saying like, here we are busting our backs, walking around hostile territory, looking for this kid, uh, you know, some country bumpkin to send him back home to his mommy. I have a mommy. I want to see my mommy. I want to go home and to my family. And here we are, sacrificing all this time to go find one person. Well, eventually they find uh, Private Ryan. He's hunkered down with a, another, a, a, another um, team of soldiers uh, at a city. And they're trying to uh, protect a bridge from the enemy. And a battle ensues. And more characters uh, die in the middle of that battle. And, but eventually the, the enemy is pushed back and the bridge is, is kept safe. Um, throughout the battle, though, the main leader of this team that was commissioned to go find Ryan gets shot, and it's a mortal wound. He's literally lying on the ground, bleeding to death, and he grabs Ryan by the shoulders and brings him in, and he says, earn this. Earn this. 
Later on, the movie fast forwards like some decades, and now Saving Private Ryan is now an older man, and he's walking around this uh, memorial to the you know the soldiers who had died in World War II. I think on Normandy. And he's just overwhelmed with emotion. And he's talking with his wife and he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. In other words, tell me I earned it. Tell me I earned it. But I, and then the camera kind of pans away and you just see how many lives were lost. And you think, how could you earn that? How could you earn that? You can't. Now multiply that by an infinite amount when it comes to Jesus coming and living the life you and I will never be able to live. He lived a perfect life. He did nothing wrong. And he died on a cross, took on our punishment for our sin to offer us salvation. Earn that? How can you earn that? You can't earn that. Now, theologically, especially if you've been part of church for a a number of years, we know that you cannot earn your salvation, right? You cannot earn your salvation. In fact, Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2, you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not of the result of works, so that no one can boast. We get that. We understand that. But tragically, many Christians don't live in light of that truth. Instead, they view grace as almost like a credit card that they charged God's heavenly bank account when the moment they got saved. And now they have to spend the rest of their life trying to pay off that debt. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Thank God that's not what this passage means. Paul's not saying earn your calling. By the way, the word calling, klesis, literally refers to your position, your role, something that you're tasked with. What is our calling? Paul just spent the past three three chapters talking about our calling. We are in Christ. That is our position. We are in Christ. So Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word worthy is the Greek word axios. And that word literally means to walk in a manner that is appropriate, that is fitting, that's suitable, or that corresponds to who you already are. The word comes uh, from um, another word that means to balance the scales. What's on one side is, is equal, so like balance it out kind of thing. The, uh, Paul uses this exact same word in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, when he says, I commend to you your, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a, worth, in a way worthy of the saints. In other words, Phoebe is already a saint. She's a follower of Christ. And so Paul's saying, welcome her in such a way that is fitting, that corresponds to who she already is. 13 um, tomorrow, in fact, uh, will mark uh, Brian and my 13-year anniversary. We've been married for 13 years, so you can say, oh, <laughs> you, you know, it's my wife. You can just say, oh, I'm so sorry. But you could just vision of grace and mercy. She's right now, I don't know if she's watching this at home, but she's with uh, kids who are a little sick right now. But 13 years ago, I was in a church and uh, I was uh, standing facing my wife or 
it was this this way or this way. I don't remember. I was facing my wife, and then my mentor uh, throughout all of college, uh, Dave Olney, he was overse- uh, officiating uh, my my wedding, and uh, he came to the point where he says, "I now pronounce you husband and wife." And then the favorite part: you may kiss your bride. I'm like yes, you know. Now at that point, was I a husband? Not a trick question. Was I a husband? Oh, yeah, of course. Now, did I know how to be a husband? <laughs> no. Just to give you an example, the day prior, packing up things, I have stacks of clothes on my floor. Man, you might know what this means. You got one stack for really clean clothes, for, you know, then you have another stack for filthy clothes, and then maybe you have another stack for semi-filthy clothes. And you're thinking, well, maybe I could chance wearing that again and no one will be offended. When all those stacks morph into one stack, that's when you know it's time to clean your laundry, right? Yeah, of course, it's logic. Does that work in marriage? Oh, no, no. But at that moment, I was declared a husband and invited to live as a husband. Was I going to do it perfectly? No but I could do so in the security that I am now in this covenant relationship with a woman who is loving, forgiving, and very gracious. Paul says here, basically, become who you already are. Is it going to be perfect? No. Are you going to have hiccups? Are you going to have even failures? Absolutely. But you can do it imperfectly in the security that you are now in a covenant relationship with a God who is loving, forgiving, kind, merciful, good, and gracious. That's why Paul brings up grace over and over and over and over again. Grace. This unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness from God. In fact, there's a passage, I think, in John where it says that we've received grace upon grace. It's like grace is not just something mopping up all of our messes in the past. Grace is before us. And when that grace is done, it's replaced by more grace. And then it's replaced with more grace and grace. And we live our life in grace. Grace is so incredible. Now, um, at the risk of beating a dead horse... I want to go to one more passage. Uh, If you have your Bible, go to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is something I brought up uh, last week, but I don't think I really did it justice. Um, Maybe it was a little bit confusing. But it's really important, very, very significant. Um, in, in Paul's day, when, as Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, uh, the worldview, uh, not for all of them, but for a good majority, uh, was that the gods uh, that you followed, the, the, the supreme gods like Zeus and Artemis, the ones who were declared Lord um, or Savior, those gods, those very powerful gods, uh, consisted of this thing called, the Greek word was pleroma. This fullness is basically the radiating glory of these gods. And that that radiating glory, that pleroma, that fullness would trickle down into the lesser gods, the lesser spiritual beings. And then that would trickle down to us in the natural world. And so the idea was you need to unlock mysteries and, and, and follow certain rituals and you know be devoted to the gods in such a way that you 
slowly but surely start experiencing more and more of that fullness, more and more of that pleroma. And so that's what this, uh, this uh, uh, image right here is, is all about. Um, and this is just my opinion and just doing, doing a study uh, on this. Um, it, it seems that many of the Jews, uh, not all of them, but you know, a good majority, um, kind of fell into this idea as well. It, it's kind of a form of Jewish mysticism. So in their eyes, God, Yahweh, had pleroma, the fullness, and that radiated glory would pass down to the angelic beings and then go down to the natural world. And so we needed to invoke the name of these angelic beings to help us, to, to serve us, so that we can experience more and more of the pleroma of God. And so uh, in Colossae, it appears a, 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 this kind of teaching was going around where people are saying, okay, well, you can follow God, Jesus, that's fine, but Jesus is not enough. That's not experiencing the pleroma. In order to experience the fullness of the gods or God, you need to invoke the names of spirit beings and angels, and you need to, you need to devote yourself to all these other um, things and practices and all that kind of stuff. But here in Colossians, uh, Paul um, picks it up. Let me see where. Uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Paul says, therefore, as you, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. This was another letter, probably written around the same time while Paul was in prison. Verse 7, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving, see to it, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Christ, basically all the allness of God, all the pleroma of God dwells in Christ. And what he says in verse 10, and, and in him you have been filled. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You have Pleroma, you have the fullness of God. Why? Because Jesus is the fullness of God. You have everything. And that's why later on Paul uh, brings up that we are we're in Christ. We are literally hidden in Christ. We are swallowed up in Christ, which means all of our inherited identity, all of our past failures, all of our screw-ups, and all of our mistakes have been swallowed up in Christ. Again, what I want, reason why I'm, I'm really trying to hammer this in is because the focus, our ultimate focus as followers, of Christ, as followers of Christ, those who are in Christ, our ultimate focus should not be on what we have to do as followers of Christ. The first thing we should focus on is who we are in Christ. And let that inspire, let that fuel how we live. Now, let's get back to the passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Covered a lot right now. Just one verse. Um, here we go. We'll, we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Timer's on. Okay. Um, so, basically, uh, Paul here is uh, speaking. Let me make sure I get through there. Okay. So Paul here is uh, not speaking just to individuals. He's speaking to the entire church. 
And so what he's saying is basically one of the ways that we, as followers of Christ, walk worthy of our calling is that we walk in unity. And so in, in, in verses um, uh, 1 to 3, Paul is exhorting us, the church, to walk worthy in unity. We are to be a community of unity. And so the first thing he brings up is the standard of a worthy walk. And we see, what is that standard? Well, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is our calling, our position? Our position is in Christ. That's the standard. Then he moseys on to the the qualities of a worthy walk, beginning in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Now, in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, uh, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle and lowly in heart, which could also be translated as humble. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. In First uh, John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in, in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, if we are in Christ, we are to walk or we are to live our lives as Christ lived. Makes sense, right? It's just logic right there. And so what are, what are some of the qualities we have here? Well, the first one is uh, humility. This idea of without being without arrogance. Pride is the primary source of disunity and division in a church. Proud people prioritize themselves and insist on being accommodated. That's not what humility is. Humility uh, maintains, helps this unity. So what, what, what is, what is uh, humility? Let's go to Philippians uh, chapter 2. I know we've been kind of jumping around different passages. That's why I kind of put some of them on the screen to help. Well, let's go to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Paul is writing this letter to the church in the city of Philippi. So Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 2. Paul says, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, by being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. In other words, church, be united. You are a community of unity. How's this work? Doing nothing, verse 3, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus is God. And he has the attributes and the power of God, but he chose not to, to uh, rely on those attributes or that power to get him through this life. He laid them aside. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the most beautiful, amazing, perfect example of what humility is. And that is the kind of humility as we as a church are to, to live out. Here's the thing. We cannot be humiliated 
if we've already humbled ourselves. Our pride cannot be pricked if we've already deflated our egos. So one of the qualities of a worthy walk is humility. The second one is gentleness. In some older translations, it's, it's uh, translated as meekness. I remember many years ago, I was a part of a ministry that uh, reached, uh, reached out to individuals who were struggling or getting out of like drug addiction, prostitution, even gangs. So we're talking about rough people, okay, like really. And uh, we were reading a passage, and uh, this guy, really burly guy, he had tattoos, he's big biceps, he had a tattoo of a creepy clown on his bald head. But he's reading the Bible, and he's reading from an older translation. And he comes across this word, and it's translated as meekness. He then slams his Bible and goes, what a mi- wait a minute, did I sign up for Camp Cupcake or something? Like, what's going on? Because his idea was meekness was attributed to weakness. Meekness was like the idea of being a, 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 a carpet that people just walk all over. But the reality, this word here was used to describe animals that were trained, particularly horses that were used for war, that would actually pull chariots. So you're talking, if you're a horse that goes into battle, I mean, it's got to be trained really well, you know, to just be focused. And, you know, if it's going to be pulling a trailer, it's got to be really strong. But it was well trained, and so these horses were considered meek. So another way of translating this word for gentleness is even-tempered. This idea of power that is under control. Now, we kind of understand uh, some of this who are parents, and let's say their sibling uh, is wanting, older sibling is wanting to touch their new sibling who's just a newborn. What does the parent do? The parent grabs the son's hand or the daughter's hand and goes to the baby and goes, soft, 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 right? Because the last thing we want to do is the baby, oh, brother, sister, ah! I mean, the baby already had a rough entrance into the world. You don't need to have that anymore. Problems there. That's the idea of gentleness. Christians must be mindful on how we treat others. Look what Proverbs 15.1 says. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So how do we walk? We walk in unity as a church. What are some of the qualities of that worthy walk? It's humility and gentleness. Then he goes on to patience. To patience. The word uh, patience in the Old Testament, uh, the word that's used to describe God as being patience. I mean, patience here could refer to uh, steadfastness, long-suffering, or forbearance. The Old Testament uh, word used to describe the patience of God little, literally could be translated long nosed. Long nosed. Because the idea was, you know, your nose, you could flare it up if you're angry. Flare it up. Flare it up. Or if you see like an angry bull or animal, what do they do? They blow all this. They're angry. So it's the idea of they're long nosed. So they're not easily angered. They're, they, they, don't, they have a long fuse. They're patient. Um, in uh, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 19, 20, it says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Christians need to cultivate the, uh, 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 an ability to stay calm and stay uh, and steady and even. Um, oops, I lost my train of thought here. 
or not translate. I lost my notes here. Christians need to cultivate the ability to stay calm and steady even when they encounter unsettling people or even when they uh, are surrounded by upsetting circumstances. They're to be humble. They're to be gentle. They're to be patient. So those are the qualities of a worthy walk. Now we move on to the means of this worthy walk. How do we achieve this worthy walk? Continuing on in verse 2, he says, showing tolerance. Continually uh, showing tolerance. The word there means to, to put up with, to bear with, to endure, to forbear. Showing tolerance for one another in love. The world, world's definition of tolerance is very different from the biblical definition. Today's definition uh, uh, in the world, the, the definition of tolerance is don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge my behavior. Don't judge my values or my views. In, in fact, I want you to celebrate them. That's what tolerance really is. But the reality is uh, biblical tolerance is, is not that. It's, it's enduring. It's bearing with one another, putting up with each other. As one pastor put it, biblically, uh, the church tolerate the intolerable. We bear with the unbearable and endure with the undurable. Uh, now, th- this does not mean, I want to make it really clear, this does not mean that we don't push away sin. We don't like, oh, just pretend it's not there. Because God doesn't do that. You know, what it does mean is that as, as believers, we're, we're patient, we're gracious, we're, we're loving, obviously. But we have to be careful when we approach someone. Are we approaching someone for a legitimate sin? Or are we pro- approaching someone due to a personality conflict? Due to differences in opinion? preferences, or even expectations? Is it really a sin, or is it just personal opinion, preference, expectations? That's what you need to really be careful with. Because a lot of problems that happen in the church are not all of them because the result of sin. It's the result that we're different people. We have different personalities. We think differently. We do things differently. And you may have expectations of this is what I expect of you and this is what I think you should do in your life. And we don't do it. Well, hey, listen, you don't meet my expectations either. You know, we to be loving, we to be patient, bear with one another, bear with one another. Uh, look what uh, Proverbs 19, uh, oops, Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We are to be tolerant, show tolerance, continually bear with one another, put up with one another. We're all different. Sometimes we're going to rub each other the wrong way. But let's be, let's be tolerant of each other. Let's, let's do this. It's, we're supposed to do this out of love. The word he says, um, showing tolerance to one another in love. The Greek word is agape love. It's the same love, the sacrificial devotion that Christ displayed for us. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, Above all, he's talking to the church, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show tolerance for one another. Continually show tolerance to one another. Bear with, with one another. Yes, we have differences. Let's love one another. And we'll look past those differences. We'll look past those offenses. You know, you might have said something that I took wrong and you weren't meaning to be made you know, being mean or spiteful, but I took it the wrong way. Instead of me burning with anger, oh, how dare you do that? Be patient. Show tolerance. Love. The other um, means of, of, this, of, of this unity that, that Paul brings up is um, verse three, being diligent Literally, continually making an effort, doing one's best to preserve, literally to to watch, to guard, to protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's, Here's the thing we need to notice. We do not manufacture or create this unity. We don't have to create it. We already possess this unity in Christ through His Spirit. We already have it. So like an athlete who's diligent, who's doing their very best, we must do our very best to guard and protect this unity because we already have it. Let's do our best to keep it because what's the result of that? He says, peace, peace. This word means freedom from worry, tranquility. Who doesn't want that? I mean, outside the, these, these walls in this world, there's really not a lot of peace. It's the opposite of peace, right? Why do we want to bring that in here? Why do we want to bring it among each other, brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's be diligent. Let's do our best to preserve, to protect, to watch over this unity so we can have peace. And I love what he says, the bond of peace. The word he uses for bond is, is a pseudesmos. It's very familiar, it's similar to the word he uses in uh, verse one when he says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. That's desmos. This is pseudesmos. So basically what Paul's saying is, just as I am bound to Christ, we, the church, are to be bound to one another in love. In love. So then he moves on. He moves on. So as a church, we are to be a community of unity. That unity is fueled by humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance to one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. And here he gives the, 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 that this unity in verses 4 to 6, this unity is based on the Trinity. Now, those of you new to the Bible, it, the, the word Trinity isn't a word that we find in the Bible, but it's a word used to describe a concept that we find in the Bible taught throughout the whole Bible, is that there is one God, but this one God is way more amazing than we would could ever imagine. That this one God eternally exists as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Distinct persons, each of them fully God, yet there's only one God. How does that work? I have no idea. 
<laughs> and, and many, many theologians have run into much error in trying to figure out how to describe this truth. But basically, the unity that we find within the Godhead is to be exemplified in the church. That's how we image God. As a church is a community of unity, we image God, who within himself is Trinity. And so the first thing is that this unity is based on the Spirit. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Now, so first, first one is one body. Paul says that Christ is the head of this body. And if you think of a body, um, there are a lot of moving parts in this body, right? A lot of moving parts that all have to work in such a way in order to allow you to do simple tasks. I mean, do you realize what was involved just for you, and, you know, coming out of your car, walking in this room? I mean, all the, the nerves and muscles and ligaments and bone, everything has to be working just so that you can walk into this building. Even when you sit down, you think the most simplest thing, sit down, you realize how much is what's involved in that, just allowing you to do that. Your body working so perfectly in order to allow you to sit down. We are a body. We are part of one body. And like a body, we're made up of different members. And we need each other in order to function properly. We need each other. Being a Christian isn't a, a solo mission. It's a mission alongside brothers and sisters. It's a mission, a part of a team, a part of a body, a part of a family. Part of that one body. Then he says one spirit which really interesting during uh, for the Ephesians, um, they they were uh, they had magic books that they, they would follow prior to coming to Christ, and in these books um, they were encouraged uh, to call upon uh, helper spirits called paradroi. These helper spirits would come upon them and and help them do. Simple tasks to pretty significant tasks. They would you know, help them in their life, guiding them and directing them. But here Paul's saying, listen, you know, that's done away with. You are now in Christ. You're part of this one body. Christ is the head and you follow one spirit. Not these spirits. You don't need any of those spirits. You just follow one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And guess what? That's enough because the Holy Spirit is God. Then he goes on just as you were called in one hope of your calling. The word hope is the idea of a confident expectation. During the Civil War, uh, there was a battle uh, that became known as the Battle of uh, Stones River. Uh, it started in uh, December, 30, December 30th, 1862, and it lasted three days. It was a really intense battle, and after the battle, that the it resulted in thousands of casualties. I think over like 23,000 or something like that. It was a very brutal battle, bloody battle. Now, during that time, it was not uncommon for military bands to play in the evening uh, prior to the next battle in order to encourage the soldiers. And sometimes those, those bands would actually have a battle of the bands. 
You know, they would have, you know, the northern side, the Union and the Confederate bands. You know, the Union may play Yankee Doodle, and then the Confederates may play Dixie. You know, and they kind of compete against each other, but they're trying to encourage the, the soldiers. Um, one evening... Uh, one of the bands, and I don't remember exactly which one it was, whether it was the north side or the southern side, one of the bands started uh, playing the song Home Sweet Home. And it was a song that was very popular, not just for the Union Army, the people in the north, but even the people in the south. It was a song that everybody loved. Listen to um, the words, to one of the, the verses. To thee I'll return, overburdened with care. The heart's dearest solace while smile on me there. No more from that cottage again will I roam. Be it ever so humble, there is no place like home. And what happened is that song started playing by one band. Pretty soon another band, the other band started playing along together. And this army started singing along. And then pretty soon this other army started and they're all singing together. This one song, Home Sweet Home. You have Union, Confederate, Northerner, Southerner, City Slicker, Country Bumpkin. All differences were dwindled in this shared longing for home. Similarly, all of our differences that divide us as Christians dwindle due to our shared hope in Christ. There's no place like home. Ooh, that's just, ooh, chills, right? Just like, ah, let's soak in that for a little bit. The second um, one is unity is is based on the sun. And so uh, Paul says in verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Focus on Lord. Lord means master, ruler. The one who's in charge. In the first century, uh, Roman citizens were called, you know, some required sometimes in, in most places to go to a certain spot and declare Caesar is Lord. And in Ephesus, they wouldn't only say that Caesar is Lord, but they would also uh, go to the temple of Artemis and declare that she is Lord. She is master. She is ruler. They'd go to, you know, Zeus, and they would say the same thing about Zeus and other gods, that they are lords, that they are master. But we don't serve all those lords. There's only one Lord that we serve, and he's Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler. And he says in one faith, Paul brings this up, this idea of faith is not just a, uh, our belief, because we all share the belief in Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, but also we share truth, you know, the same truth about Christ, about the gospel. We're, we're, we're united that way. One faith. And then he goes up to one baptism. In Galatians it says, uh, for as many as you were baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. Baptism is basically an outward display of what has happened internally, what has happened spiritually. Baptism is our identification with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And so just as Jesus died, our old self dies, our old identity dies. And just as Jesus was buried, our old, our old self is put away with and Jesus rose from the dead, we rise to a new life as new creations we are no longer in our old identity we are now in our new identity which is in christ we share that that truth 
And then finally, he, he brings up our unity is based on the Father. He says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God is amazing. He's, he's complex. Our, our brains can't fathom the greatness, the vastness, the glory of God, that he's one God, yet he exists as three distinct persons. How does that work? I have no idea. I can't wait to see. But God is so amazing. But he is one God. This is a truth that is told all, you know, taught all the way from like Genesis 1 all the way throughout the Bible. Uh, dedicated Jews would recite uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema that, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe in one God. In the first century, they believed in many gods. No, we believe in the one true powerful God. Not only that, we, we also uh, serve the, the sovereign father. He is the father of all, who is over all in, uh, and through all and in all. In a general sense, God is the creator of all. All created beings, whether physically created or spiritually created, owe their existence to God. But specifically, we as followers of Jesus, we are his children. He is our heavenly father. And he is sovereign. He is actively ruling. He is reigning. He is governing. He is mobilizing. He is empowering. He is serving. And he is saving. And we serve him. So, church, in closing, you are in Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to live up. You know, you don't deserve it. If you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are in Christ. In addition, church, you are one body in Christ. You are one family in Christ. You are one bride of Christ. Recognize the significance of that calling. Recognize the significance of that position and live it out. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. There's a lot here to tackle, Lord, and I definitely could spend a whole lot longer uh, just diving into it even more. But, Lord, it's enough to mull over. It's enough to encourage us. It's enough to challenge us. Lord, may, may you help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. May you help us walk in a way that's fitting, that corresponds to who we are, already are. May we become who we already are. Thank you that we could do it in the security that we are in a covenant relationship with you and you are forgiving, you are loving, and you are gracious. Thank you so much, Lord. May we be the church that you called us to be. May we be a community of unity. May we be humble towards one another. May we be gentle towards one another. May we be patient. May we be tolerant. May we endure with one another. May we um, bear with one another in love. Lord, we want to be a church that images you well. So again, help us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.